Welcome to the Rise of the Ageless Starman. If you are an investor, a scientist, or an entrepreneur, please join us as we discuss about today's innovation and tomorrow's creation. Together we are here to find out how to make humans creative and vital at any age. How and why Singapore is becoming a leading force in aging research. How did AI affected the research and what can we do today that we couldn't do a decade ago? Why we can be optimistic that aging could be modified and what needs to be done in order to accelerate the research. My guest today, Dr. Brian Kennedy, will answer those questions and much more. So stay tuned as we have a lot to learn. Today I'm happy to host Dr. Brian Kennedy. Brian Kennedy is internationally recognized for his research in the basic biology of aging and as a visionary committed to translating research discoveries into new ways of delaying, detecting, preventing and treating human aging and the associated diseases. He is the director of the Center for Healthy Aging at the Yang Lu Lin School of Medicine at the National University of Singapore. He also serves as a di- distinguished professor in biochemistry and physiology. The center seeks to demonstrate that aging interventions can be successfully employed in humans to extend healthspan, the disease-free and highly functional period of life. From 2010 to 2016, he was the president and the CEO of the Buck Institute for Research on Aging, where he is currently remains as a professor and his lab addresses the biology of aging. Dr. Kennedy has adjunct appointments at the Leonard Davis School of Gerontology at USC and the Department of Biochemistry at the University of Washington, where he was a faculty member from 2001 to 2010. This is just on a nutshell. We will hear more during our interview. Brian, thank you sure. for, for joining me today. It's uh, my pleasure. Happy to be here. How, how are you doing today? Pretty good. I've uh, been stuck in uh, Singapore for four months. I was trying to remember the last time I went four months without getting on an airplane. And I can't remember. <laughs> so. yeah. yeah, it's a small, uh, it's a, it's a small country. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Brian, before I, I will start with uh, the question that I was, I, I thought I was uh, going to ask the last question. I will start if I was a genie today, mm. and you could ask three requests in order to make longevity research uh, faster. What would you ask? See, I think I'd just ask for immortality and then buy a beach house, you know, somewhere in Polynesia and be done with it. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm avoiding your question. Yeah. (laughs) I think... I think that there's there's really two things that I think are critical that we need right now. One is more resources because uh, there's so much promise right now in the aging research field. And even though the, the money flow has gone up, particularly from the private sector, uh, we're still incredibly underfunded compared to other areas of biomedical research. And yet I think the, 
the promise of aging research is really greater than any that of any specific disease. Um, and I think the other thing is just awareness. You know, it's uh, getting the public excited about this idea of being healthy longer. You know, I think that we've we've put we've beat it into everyone's brains that you don't go to the doctor until you get sick. And then the doctor does sick care and tries to make you better again. And really what they do is they keep you alive longer, but they rarely return you to full health. Uh, and we need to revisit that concept and get people aware that, wow, we should be intervening while they're healthy and keeping them healthy longer, slowing down aging, keeping them functional longer. And I think that's going to be e easier than treating these diseases. Yes. Um I have a different problem. I, I I'm afraid to go to the doctor to to hospitals to get a disease. It's well, especially now, it's not a good time. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you should go. <laughs> I recommend yeah. the audience to go if they. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, tell us a little bit now. Now you're in Singapore. You started uh, your. Uh, you moved from the U.S. Uh, tell us, how did you start with your career in the aging field? Yeah, it was uh, um, a little bit of an accident. So uh, when I went to graduate school at MIT a long time ago, I wanted to do a project that was uh, in a field we really knew very little about. And uh, I started talking to Lenny, Lenny Garente, who's a professor there, still a professor there. And another graduate student named Nick Austri Austriaco, who's since become a priest. Uh, and um, we decided to, what would be a, a really project that was out there. And uh, so we were studying yeast cells, uh, these single-celled organisms. And we decided, I wonder if we can study aging in this very simple system. And if we can, we can learn something about how an organism ages. I, I don't think we really thought that we would understand human aging by studying these yeast cells. But the truth is that in the long run, we discovered sirtuins that way, uh, and we got to the TOR pathway that way, and it, it turns out that aging is really conserved, or at least aspects of aging are really conserved all the way down to simple eukaryotes. And so I just started working on aging because I thought it was a, a important question we didn't know much about. And then I got excited in it and you know, I left a little bit as a postdoc to do cancer research, but for the most part, I've been doing aging my whole career. And did you thought uh, when you started, did you thought it would be, we will recognize it as a disease? I, I don't think we even thought of it that way at the time. You know, I, I, in fact, when I started, it wasn't to like do anything to humans. I just found it fascinating that things got old. And uh, so we thought that we could tackle that question from a very basic biology point of view uh, in yeast. And it was only when I worked in the field longer that I realized that this is a critical problem for humanity. I mean, aging is probably the biggest medical challenge of this century. Uh, and you might argue for coronavirus right now, but in fact, aging is the biggest risk factor for mortality due to coronavirus too. So Uh, we talk about aging as a risk factor for chronic diseases, but they're also a risk factor for the severity of acute diseases like coronavirus, influenza, and a bunch of others. So I still think the underlying challenge we have is that the demography of humanity right now is heavily tipped toward 
an older population and older people get sick because they're aging. So if we could try to treat one disease at a time, but it's not going to work very well. Really, we have to go after aging. So when I realized that, I slowly started changing my research. So now it's much more translational and, and clinical uh, because we're really trying to take the insights we've gained from these animal models and apply them to humans to keep them healthy longer. Yeah. If I refer to what you said in the first question about awareness, but I think part of the message that we need to uh, already transcend is that like we are already in the longevity era. Like we made the average life extension. Um, we made a progress. So as we see now with as you said, with the older people that they are already fragile and and uh, the coronavirus is one example, but we have a wide um, population now of uh, old people above uh, 80 and 90. So we need to start understand that we're already here. Now we want to make it, yeah. we want to do it that we can live better. That's, that's, that's all. And yeah, I think in, in one way of thinking about it is in the last century, we really created the aging problem. So mm -hmm. people lived longer, not because we slowed aging, but because we dealt with age extrinsic causes of mortality, like childbirth, water supply, uh, antibiotics, um, and a whole range uh, reduced childbirth mortality, food security, all of these things allowed people to live longer. And then they all aged and they got all these chronic diseases. And so in, in essence, by solving some problems, we created another problem, which is the chronic disease and acute severity of diseases of aging. Uh, and now this century, we have to solve that problem. Yeah. Now, uh, today, today you, you are a professor in Singapore and for uh, four years already? Three years. Yeah. Three years. So. Yeah. So what is the, the difference between the ecosystem in Singapore to the U.S. in terms of the relationship between academia and investor? And is, is it easy to collaborate? Yeah, I, I think that um, it, it's similar in the sense that there are venture capital people here in Singapore, there are investors in Singapore, and there's great academic science. Uh, it's a little bit behind in terms of partnering those investors with the scientists. And so we're still developing that, particularly for something like aging. A lot of the investment has been in engineering technology space, and that's been very successful. So we're actively talking to a lot of venture people now in Singapore to get, we want to create a startup culture around the longevity space and that bring young companies here, start companies here, uh, get IP here. And, and I think we're making some progress for that. And we're certainly open to investment from outside Singapore too. In fact, it's a, a good uh, a tax place to have your company and, and the, and the uh, government has a lot of incentives to bring companies into Singapore. So um, I think it's actually a, a, a big opportunity. Uh, we're trying to make this the hub of aging research and development in Asia. And, you know, Singapore is a good place for that because it has extremely long lifespan, extremely low birth rate, and it's hard to bring more immigrants here. And so you've got a, 
in 10 years, there's only going to be two workers for every retired person. So they really need to do something about the aging problem. And I think the government realizes that. Mm -hmm. So it's a good climate right now to, to do private sector development and partner with academics in Singapore. Yeah, actually, you touched a few of my further questions. Uh, are there, there, there are hubs and for, uh, you know, for aging? Well, I like, yeah, I like to think of ourselves as a hub. You know, we're running this uh, Center for Healthy Longevity at, in, in UH, NUS. And uh, it's actually affiliated with the National University Health System. And that system is responsible for the health care of about a third of the Singapore population. So one of the main reasons I came to Singapore, you know, I was CEO of the Buck Institute and doing a lot of research there, but that was really preclinical basic research. And uh, the, the possibility of coming over here and partnering with a hospital that does good clinical research and is really, you know, dedicated to trying to target the aging process gives, makes it easier for me to take interventions that we've developed and bring them into the clinic. And so our center is really about, you know, doing both preclinical and clinical research and uh, finding new interventions to slow aging and then validating them in the clinic and ultimately bringing them to the community in Singapore. So we'd like to extend health span by five years in Singapore. That's our, you know, ultimate goal in this initial phase. So um, I think the opportunity is really there. And there's also, Aging research at other parts of Singapore, including at uh, the other universities like uh, Nanyang Technical University and Duke in U.S. And so we partner with, we collaborate with people at those institutions as well. Um, there are a number of centers focused on geriatrics too, which is uh, really managing the elderly population. What, what we're really trying to do is to prevent the aging process. So our target population is younger people that are at risk of disease. Mm-hmm. and not yet frail or, or, or with Alzheimer's. So we want to prevent those diseases more. But we're happy to work with these other institutions that are focusing more on the elderly population as well. Yeah, so we touched uh, the Singapore, Singapore ecosystem. Um, now let's uh, talk a little bit about the aging research, research uh, itself. Um, I have... I, I have a basic question. I still didn't ask any of my guests about the... Uh, oh Yeah. <laughs> why, why do you think uh, today, around 120 years old, is our uh, biological limit? Yeah, I don't know if it's a biological limit. I think that's a lot of debate in the field. There's some people who argue that while media... So life expectancy is not going up at the same rate, and it may reflect some biological constraint on how long we can live. Um, I, I just don't think we have the data to answer that question. I think that in every animal model we've tested so far, we can extend maximum lifespan. And I think that's probably going to be true in humans as well. However, it's possible that there are different constraints on aging that come into play later. Let me use the example of yeast cells to explain that. So in yeast, one cell can divide, and a normal cell divides about 25 times. And so we were able to devise a system to mutate the yeast so that they divide more times or live longer. And what happens is we found those mutants, but then when we got to 45, we couldn't find anything that lived longer than that. And 
my theory as to why is that when we interrogated cells living at 25 generations, they were dying for certain reasons and we could manipulate those reasons. But when we got to 45, the yeast were dying for a different reason. So if we were able to start the screen all over again with 45 generation yeast and do the mutation again, we'd find longer lived mutants. But those pathways that were important at 45 weren't have any effect at 25. And so we didn't hit them with our mutation mm -hmm. screen. So I think that that may be the issue is that, you know, as you break down some barriers and, and get people to live longer, new barriers might arise and you may have to start all over to figure out what those barriers are and how do we break them down. Yeah. Well, it, it raises another question for me, like if there is an optimal, like we know that mouse, they have a short life and humans have a lot longer. So is there an optimal age to, to, to uh, make a trial zone? Like, you know, that you are already starting to aging a little bit quicker, but uh, we're thinking of a of a of around forty five to sixty five people that are not yet sick, but they're going to get sick in the near future. That may not be the optimal intervention point in the long run. Maybe it's younger, uh, but I think that the um, we want to start there because we think that's the best point where we can have an effect. And it may be hard to measure things in a twenty five year old. Mm -hmm. So um, the goal is to uh, take people that are going to get sick from disease in the next few years and see if we can reverse biomarkers of aging in, the, in that population and then see if we prevent disease. Okay. And like when scientists, they always say that we have a model to, uh, to a treatment or to a disease. What, what exactly do they mean? You mean animal model? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that there's, well, so, you know, it's hard to do research in humans. Uh, and uh, so you need some sort of way to ask basic questions that, that you can't ask by, you know, cutting out tissues of humans and doing experiments, for instance. And so there have been a number of animal models that have been developed. So what we're essentially saying is that we're using things like worms and flies and yeast and mice. We want to understand aging in those, those animals. Mm -hmm show that we can delay aging by certain interventions that could be drugs or genetic changes and then see if those drugs and genetic changes translate to humans so especially the drugs so we use those models to try to understand aging and to try to develop translational approaches and then ultimately you validate them with clinical trials in humans um, now there are other kinds of animal models for disease so if you want to study Alzheimer's disease, for instance, in a mouse, you have to make mutations in that mouse that mimic the human uh, condition and even put human genes in. And then that mouse gets something that looks like Alzheimer's. But for aging, we, we really look at the normal pathology of the mouse and, and compare that to the normal pathology of humans. And it's not this identical, there are differences, but we think that the pathways that govern those pathologies are very conserved. And so if we find interventions that target those pathways and they work in mice, I think a substantial subset of them are gonna work in humans. That's a hypothesis we haven't completely tested yet, but that's my belief. Yeah, um, and why my, my mouse are usually used? I, I think it's just convenience. I, I mean, you know, you might argue they use primates because they're closer to humans, but. Yeah. 
primates live a long time. So if you want to understand aging, you need a, a, a long study. And if you want to do interventions, you know, and look at lifespan, you know, and, it's a mini uh, multi-genetically similarities, no? Like, what's that? And it needs to be like as uh, similar genetically to human as it well, can. Yeah, but uh, the primate studies are extremely expensive and extremely slow. And so a lot of drug companies use mice and rats because you can do the experiments much faster and much cheaper. Now, at some point, in, in, in some cases, you need to do an intermediate phase in primates. Uh, I, I don't know that – and there have been primate studies on aging. Marmosets live about 11 years, and there have been studies looking at calorie restriction in both rhesus monkeys and marmosets and also rapamycin study ongoing in marmosets now. Um, but uh, we think that uh, it's, it's likely that we can take the, the findings we have in mice and go ahead and test them clinically in human studies. Because right now, a lot of the things we're testing are repurposing drugs, so they've already been used a lot in the, in the clinic, and so we, we know a lot about those drugs in humans already. Or we're using natural products and supplements that are, are generally regarded as safe. And so, yeah. you know, a lot of times you have to do primates to do the initial safety studies because you don't want to go into humans not knowing that you might get some toxicity or something. But in, in the case now, the things we're using are already, have already been studied in humans and we know their safety profiles. Um, and uh, I see a lot of discussion about uh, biomarkers and the new technologies like uh, CRISPR, gene therapies, uh, stem cells. And of course, a lot of companies are, are funded around the technology. And aren't we missing a fundamental uh, building block of the cure for aging when we don't focus on understanding the aging as a process? Um, well, you know, 10 years ago, I think a lot of people thought of aging biomarkers as a failure. You know, you could do physiologic markers like walking speed and um, pulse wave velocity, heart rate variability, things you could measure. And in older population, those things do predict mortality, but they're only measuring the small aspects of aging. Um, or you could take like single markers, like an inflammatory marker like IL-6 or CRP or a uh, metabolic marker. And there was some correlation with aging, but it was very, very weak. Uh, what's changed is the, the, the strategy to use AI and then assess deep data sets like DNA methylation, uh, transcriptomics, proteomics, uh, and capture data on tens of thousands of data points and then let the computer optimize prediction to chronologic age. And so that's more or less how the epigenetic clock was created and many others. So your chronologic age might be 53, that's what I am, uh, but biologically, you know, the methylation clock may say that I'm 47, which would suggest that I'm aging well, or it may say that I'm 60, which suggests I'm aging poorly. So there have been a number of these clocks developed, and the question now is, do they capture, how much of the aging process do they capture? And we don't know the answer to that. So if it were measuring true biologic aging as a system, then you would expect that it should predict mortality. And there's already some evidence for epigenetic clock doing that. Um, 
it should predict uh, disease onsets, as aging is the biggest risk factor for disease, mm -hmm. and it should be responsive to interventions. And at least in animal models, the methylation clock appears to be responsive to interventions. But there's a whole range of others. There's, there's clocks from facial pattern recognition, there's clocks from complete blood count data, and, and a range of other things, metabolomics. Um, and another question right now is if, if you look at all these clocks that have been created, are they all measuring the same thing? Are they measuring different things or overlapping things? And, and so one of the things we're trying to do in Singapore and other people are as well is to measure as many different biomarkers as we can in the same individuals so that we can get a sense as to whether, how overlapping these clocks really are. And if we want to understand aging as best we can, do we need to use four clocks and combine the data or can we just use two or one? And, and so those questions are not really answered. But the good news is that these clocks do seem to be predicting aspects of biologic aging. And that's critical because we're not going to give drugs to people and see if they live longer. Uh, we need a shorter term assay. And so the hope is that these drugs and natural products or lifestyle interventions, we can do that for six months or maybe a year and then measure the impact of that on these clocks as a measure of seeing whether we're slowing or reversing the aging process. Um, and so those, those kinds of studies are just starting to happen and they look promising, but it's still, it's still early days. Yeah, it's early days. And you mentioned the, how AI helps uh, to do uh, research you couldn't do in the past. Yeah, but do you see the acceleration of the progress of research? Yeah, I, I totally do. I think in the, the last 10 years, we've really, I think the field has really come around to the concept that we can slow aging. I think 10 years ago, we were still arguing as to whether aging was modifiable or not. And uh, uh, now it's eminently clear that that can be done in every organism we've tested, including at least early suggestive data in humans. So the intervention there has been really a revolution. Now we probably have 20 or 30 small molecules that people have hypothesized might slow aging. They won't all work, but some subset of them I think will. And then now we have these biomarkers and they're not completely validated, but I think they are measuring aspects of aging. So I see it, the next step is putting the interventions together with the biomarkers. So we wanna know, you can imagine like keys and locks. The interventions are keys and the biomarkers are locks. We wanna figure out which keys go in which locks and when we open that door, what are the physiologic changes that happen? You know, how, what improves with regard to aging? So I think that's going to be an exciting phase of this research. And a lot of these products are natural products and repurposed drugs. So it's not unfeasible to see them actually on the market. So some of them are already on the market. It's not unfeasible to see them on the market very shortly. So we could be impacting human aging you know, within a five-year window, I think, if things go well. So. I hope. It sounds uh, very short comparing to, to drugs. Yeah, I mean, there may, be, there may be bigger and better things down the road, new drugs, regenerative medicine, and, and, that, and ultimately that may have a much bigger impact. But I think if we can have any validated impact with what we have now, it'll change the mindset of people. If, if, if we can in a way that people believe slow the aging process or reverse some aspect of aging, we won't have problems getting resources after that. So, um, because I think people will get it. Uh, but right now everyone says, well, yeah, maybe it's a risk factor, but you can't do anything about aging. And 
clinicians are not really on some are but a lot of them aren't on board yet so uh, we need we need those big results even if they're not a huge effect uh to really demonstrate that this is possible and then once once clinicians and governments realize that wow if we extend health span we're going to save trillions of dollars and keep people healthy longer give them a better quality of life some of these interventions may compress morbidity so people you know the health span is extended faster than lifespan which would be a huge boost and and to healthcare and uh, i think people will get on board but we need some evidence that's going to work in humans and we're not quite there yet so yeah well you when i speak about the topic with people they always go to yes but the insurance company Uh, wouldn't like the idea because of uh, the econ- econ- yeah. I think it's a, it's a revolution in medicine it really is I say we're going from sick care to health care and you know I, I mean it. it it's a big difference right because physicians get paid on reimbursement you know I, I, I want hospitals I once talked to a head of a hospital chain and told them what we wanted to do and the guy said I'd never give you any money. You're going to cut my procedures by 60%, you know, and But insurance companies aren't going to reimburse you. For him, the, <laughs> the quality of life. Well, I, look, I think, look, I don't want to vilify clinicians and pharmacy, people in the pharmaceutical industry. I think they're trying to do good things. But we need to convince them that you can help people more by keeping them healthy, and it's possible to do that. But it's going to mean a whole change to the healthcare system as well. And there are a lot of entrenched um, groups within the healthcare system that make a lot of money off the current system. Yeah. So, um, you know, if you don't need to do uh, as many heart surgeries, you know, some people are not going to make as much money. And so I think that what we're trying to do is the right thing to do. And ultimately, it saves a lot of money to governments and healthcare. But it's going to change the landscape of what healthcare looks like, too, if we're successful. And that's always... A difficult thing to do yes well governments I'm sure they already see it the the benefits and that they they need to take some uh, steps yeah, yeah uh, you know there are different governments are moving at different pace you know the the US government is kind of hard to figure out right now so maybe I'll skip the US at the moment but the, after uh, the corona I think the that people start to understand I I hope so but you know Israel's government talks about aging uh, UK's you know doing things about aging Singapore is very engaged in aging China is starting to focus on aging so countries are really starting to get it and they're trying to figure out what to do and so you could build more hospitals you can build more nursing homes you Uh, you can put roofs on the sidewalks in Singapore so old people can walk and not get so hot in the sun you know or you can actually go after the medical problem and try to keep these people younger and healthier and I think that's the right answer but it it still sounds like science fiction to some people and so there's still a job that we have to convince them that this can work and mm-hmm. it's going to have a far bigger impact than a lot of these other strategies yes it and the Chinese government are they uh, they're watching what's going on in Singapore first of all China is uh, they put a lot of money into research on aging in the last few years and so they're really trying to ramp up aging research I think they 
the nice thing about China is that, you know, I've been trying to, I had a lab in China for a while. I was trying to tell them this and it was before it's time. But once China makes a decision, they can put a lot of money into systems and, and something and make it happen fast. And there's a private sector, you know, industry there too, a lot of investors. So they're, um, they have a lot of potential in China. Singapore has put a lot of money aside to really do something about aging and they're still um, they're debating directions to go to use that money to help the aging population. So um, we're still in sort of a discussions about well, how to best use that money, but they are focusing, you know, down the road and saying we have to do something about the aging process. So I think they're progressive in Singapore, but the, the key decisions have, have not yet been made as to how they're going to try, try to tackle the problem. I I think that the big push will come from China because uh, now the one child, uh, the, the, one, uh, yeah. the, the one child, um, <clears throat> I forgot the word. Policy, yeah. Policy, yes. Yeah. The one child <laughs> policy will start now to to create uh, the effects of the unbalanced uh, social uh, structure will start now to show up. Absolutely. China is the fastest. They're not the oldest population, uh, but they're the fastest changing population. And so they're, ha- they're rapidly developing an aging problem. Yeah. Um, I say aging problem. I really don't think it's a problem in the long run if we do this the right thing, because it's nice to have people that have experience and wisdom around as long as they're functional and active and have a high quality of life. And I think we can achieve that. So people say silver tsunami, but I actually think it's a, it's an opportunity, not a problem. As long as we make an effort to figure out how to keep these people healthy. Uh, but yeah, China is going to have, uh, and they also have, they have some other challenges too. They don't have a lot of nursing homes. Typically the older members stay with the family and the younger people in the family take care of them. But what's happened is the younger people in China have moved to the cities. So you have all these older people living alone in the countryside and they don't have good uh, health, you know, a yeah. good uh, network to take care of them. And so, yeah, I think China definitely recognizes the problem. They, and, and uh, I would expect them to be one of the leaders in, in, in moving quickly to solve this. And of course, I don't want to ignore the U.S. I mean, the, the National Institute of Aging was certainly one of the forerunners of funding aging research um, and still trying to do everything it can to support aging research. It's part of the NIH. Uh, and there's a there's a lot of investors both in the U.S. and in Europe now that are trying to focus on longevity. So the private sector is really taking off in the aging space. And so that's a good thing, too. So you know, there's it's really got to be a global effort. This is a global problem. Even if you look at Africa, you know, you don't think of Africa as having an aging problem, but four of the top 10 causes of mortality are age-related diseases. And the interesting thing about that is they're happening much earlier. So people are getting cardiovascular disease 10 to 15 years earlier than in other parts of the world. So Africa has an aging problem too. They're just solving their other problems with acute diseases and, and other issues, and they're immediately transitioning into an aging problem. So this is going to be a global thing. In 2050, there are two two billion people over 65. Yeah, uh, so. yeah. I yes, in the Alzheimer's Association website, uh, they say only in the U.S. it will be around of um, 
14 million people with Alzheimer's. Yeah, um, the numbers are scary. And uh, I think we can prevent that. But, but you know, we need people to – we need believers to get on board and put the resources in, either from the private side or the, or the government side. As – As for the private size, uh, I'm optimistic. I, 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 I uh, just wrote uh, a short article and, and I uh, took uh, numbers from uh, Credit Suisse. It's a bank, banking uh, yep. investment company, a big one, a global. And they say what, what they show in their reports that in uh, 2017, There were 36 million, million millionaires in the world. And in uh, 2018, there were another 6 million millionaires. Yep. So it's a lot of money in private hands. And it, and it will give us like a wide, a wide enough um, a customer You know, we, we, we have enough customers to pay a little bit premium in the beginning for the development. And after 10 years, I, I, I hope it will. Yeah, you know, a lot of things like this start with people paying a lot of money, you know, to, it's a very exclusive strategy. Um, but the, the, I think that's sometimes the way it has to work. But our goal is to find affordable strategies that we can scale into populations and You know, I want to use Singapore as a test bed for that. And so we're really interested in natural products and repurposing drugs that don't cost that much right now because we think some of them are going to have an effect. And, uh, and then once they have an effect, we can make the case to, for, you know, the government can pay for it for that. For that. It's the amount of money they save. They can afford to pay for an intervention. So it's, uh, yes. I, I, think that, I think that you're right. Some of the some of the stem cell stuff and higher end stuff may be something for the rich people to start with, but we can get data from them and then find ways to make it cheaper. So, yeah, fin finally it needs to be cheaper, but I, I, I don't see like how we can, as we said, it's incentives of the demand. This is what makes the progress. And sure. And It's not, I want to get there. Any way we can get there yeah, is okay with me. The fastest we can. <laughs> yeah. It won't help the poor people if uh, it will go slower. That's for sure. Yeah, I, sure. First, we need to have the, the, the drugs. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, uh, I'm sorry to say, say it, but this is how <laughs> life goes for, as we know it now. I hope governments after the coronavirus will uh, invest Well, I'd like to see like the, you know, there's been an abandonment of belief in science too. And that's partly driven by government. You know, I think that there's kind of an anti-intellectual movement, particularly in one party in the U S and uh, it's um, it's, per, it's pervaded a lot of how people think. And so there's this idea that scientists are, are, are not to be trusted or not to be supported. And, and I, I'm scared of that because I, I don't think we can abandon science and technology. You know, it's, uh, uh, it's gotten us a long way and it'll get us further, but we, we, we still have to do the basic research to understand how things work and then we can improve them. But yeah. it, right now there's less, less interest in doing that basic research. And that's a concern to me. 
I well, that's another topic. But I don't know if <laughs> I, I think that part of the intellectual problem is that a lot of schools like created the like in a, the academia started to go to directions that are not science, and the research is not scientific. Yeah. not by results and it's make it it makes the conversation a little bit uh, shallow i think but yeah it's, it's I mean, there are a lot of there are a lot of factors that are driving this but i i think we need to yeah uh, reth especially the u.s needs to rethink you know where it should be putting its resources and right now we put all of those resources in defense spending <laughs> Uh, and if we just stipend a little bit off of that, we could double the NIH budget and really advance science. And, and uh, um, there are a lot of other uses for that money, too, that I think would be good. I think that uh, the, the budget in the U.S. is so unbalanced right now that I'm not sure who it's helping. It, it, it's, uh, um, and uh, I, I don't want to get too political, but, you know, I, I feel like that we need to go back to the things that we know can improve our lives and science and technology can do that. I hope uh, like the internet came from the U.S. Army. Yeah, I, I'm not I saying there are good things that the, come out of it. <laughs> yeah, no, but, but I just hope they see the benefits from investing in a medical project too as part yeah. of what they get. And well, I, you know, the Def Defense Department does do some research uh, in strange areas like they they funded a lot of breast cancer and prostate cancer research and uh, part of that's because it, there were times in the history where it was very difficult for senators to get projects funded through uh, like the NIH and so but if they tacked it onto a defense spending bill then it was no problem because it was such a yeah. little piece that nobody paid attention and so <laughs> there is yeah Yeah, so there's a there's been the Defense Department does fund some research, and of course, technology that supports defense also can be used for other applications. And so I I'm not saying that we should abandon all defense spending. What I'm saying is it's just unbalanced right now. And, and uh, um, you know I, I would I I just have more of a positive future oriented look. I think that says that if we continue to look for improvements that you know and that's not just aging it's in green energy and a whole range of other things mm -hmm. uh that that we could really improve the situation we live in and um you know at, at least a lot better than building more and more and more weapons <laughs> so. yeah well okay so you get you you deal with mtol in your uh, research yes yes Okay. Yeah, you explain yeah. you're right. I should I should go back to things I know about. So no, no, uh, <laughs> I'm sure you know about uh, the budget. As you, if you need a budget, yeah. you know what's going on. <laughs> but but mTOR um, is it supposed to be like uh, what uh, Nir Brazilai, Professor Nir Brazilai, does with uh, metformin? Yeah. So there's a drug. And there are derivatives of that drug, too. We have a company called Torsep that's developing derivatives of rapamycin. There are other companies doing that as well. Um, and uh, the exciting thing is that when you use rapamycin, you can think of that as sort of the precursor molecule for 
developing all kinds of other derivatives. When you use rapamycin, you have the, a big effect on aging. You extend mouse lifespan by 30%. It works everywhere it's been tested so far. There were some initial data that it might slow aspects of aging in humans. Um, and so I think there's great promise for inhibiting this TOR pathway. When you, when you look at what this TOR does, the protein stands for target of rapamycin. But what it really does is it, it senses the nutrients in the levels of nutrients. It gets activated and tells the cell to grow and divide. So we've known for a long time that calorie restriction slows aging, which means reducing those nutrients. And that reduces the activity of TOR protein. And rapamycin is sort of phenocopying that effect or doing the same thing. So um, I think there's a lot of promise. Now, rapamycin has more side effects than metformin. So I think the data that it slows aging is better than metformin. Near might disagree. Uh, but that the side effects are also higher. So we definitely want to test it in humans but we have to be careful how we do it so that we don't get any toxicity when we do that. So, and part of the reason we're developing new drugs at Torsip is to try to find derivatives that show the efficacy of rapamycin, but have reduced side effects. Um, and uh, we have strategies to do that. So. Yeah. Are you involved in uh, private companies? Are they taking yeah, so research to... Yeah, so Torcept is one of them. Uh, and uh, another company I'm involved in is a company called Ponce de Leon Health or PDL Health. Uh, and they're de we're working with them to develop combinations of natural products that affect aging. And so one of the ones we really like is alpha ketoglutarate. Um, and uh, they have a product on the market called Rejuvent already that people can buy. It's a, these are safe products. Uh, natural products uh, and they we think they are likely to have a big impact on aging at least in animals they do and we have a little bit of anecdotal data suggesting that in humans uh, we're doing clinical trials but they all got stopped for the moment because of COVID-19 but we'll pick that up soon um, but you know people know about NMN and NR these NAD precursors that you can buy already but you can go to PDL, Ponce de Leon Health and, and try Rejuvent too it's a different pathway uh, and we think the data is really promising right now on it. So we're, we're working, I'm working with a natural product company. Uh, I also work with a company called El Nutra, which uh, Walter Longo developed uh, out of USC. And they try to develop diets that mimic fasting. So you get some of the benefits of calorie restriction uh, or fasting, but you, you still have something to eat. That, uh, and so that, that's an exciting development as well. Okay. So thank you again, Brian. It was a great conversation. You are one of the, you are one of the pioneers and, uh, of the aging uh, research. And sure, uh, like you, the, the ability to say I'm tackling aging is uh, already a big breakthrough, a scientific and a social one. And I hope when you can uh, get out of Singapore again, if you, uh, I, I invite you to Israel. I'd, lo I'd love to come. I've been there before and I always enjoy traveling there. And, uh, you know, I've been saying that we're going to tackle aging for the last 15 years. And so I'm just hoping we can tackle aging before aging tackles me. So <laughs> uh, we, we need to do it together. 
<laughs> okay, it's a deal. Question. I know that Singapore and uh, Israel, they have uh, a good connections. Yeah, um, they're actually joint grants you, you can get in the biomedical space. And so we're, we're, we're starting to apply with institutions in Israel to do some joint research around aging. So uh, we're excited about that. And hopefully that'll lead to some uh, meet conferences and travel as well. So maybe, it may, you know, you better be careful inviting me. I might actually show up. So. <laughs> no, no problem. Ah, and, and I wanted to ask you, because I never ate, how is the food in Singapore? So this is a great food city. Uh, you can get... Um, uh, Malay food, Indian food, Chinese, many kinds of Chinese food, and also food from Indonesia, many other parts of Southeast Asia, good Vietnamese food. And they have good Western food too. So uh, it's uh, really, a, it, yeah. you can, it's, it's a world food city for sure. And, and the, some of the best food is like the cheap little street stands where you can get food. It's extremely safe in Singapore and uh, you pay very cheap. Uh, there's a couple street food vendors that have one-star Michelin-rated restaurants, and so yeah, you can. I saw it in. Know, <laughs> I know. So it's it's the food is really hard to beat here in Singapore. That's one of the great things about it. The humidity, I'm not so sure about, but <laughs> yeah, the food's great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I hope to. I, I hope to visit the. Uh... Yeah, you'll have to visit. Let me know. Yeah, and and one 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 more thing I forgot to ask you is that uh, I know there is a lot of foreign foreigners that uh, come to work in Singapore, but yeah, but uh, most of the population is quite uh, homoge homogeneous. No, actually, it's 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 not quite true. It's seventy percent Chinese, fifteen percent Malay, and ten percent Indian, and five percent. Heinz 57 varieties. Yeah. Uh, and so um, that's a really interesting thing because the Malayan Indian population, we know almost nothing about aging. And so one of our goals is to really understand what's similar and different about the aging process in those two ethnicities. There are different genetics, there's different lifestyle, there's different diets. And so um, we think that's a real opportunity to understand a big segment of the world population that we don't know much about right now. Yeah. Even more in the U. I mean, the U.S. is the most. Uh, you, you know, you 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 can find everything in the U.S. So yeah, and that's that's what makes the U.S. great, and that's what makes me so mad when they restrict immigration. It's it's a, it's 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 a crazy thing to do. But you're getting me back into politics. Yeah. So okay. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Thank you again. It was a great. All right, thanks a lot. Thank Anytime. You.